So, okay. People are getting more curious about attachment. What stands out to you as being really important Mm -hmm. for people as they are trying to strengthen themselves within relationship and just the relationship in general? Mm -hmm. Well, so, you know, sometimes the simplest things are the most profound, right? How you treat your body is going to have one of the most significant impacts of whether you feel grounded and secure or not. Mm -hmm. And how you treat your body is usually related to how someone else treated your body. So as you start to heal, you know, be conscious and thoughtful about responding to the cues that your body gives you, responding to your hunger cues, responding to your thirst cues, responding to your tears that when they need to come out, letting them come, um, responding to your tired cues and your desire cues. And they, there is a map within your body that already is designed to tell you how to take care of yourself. Like your nervous system will show you the way if you listen well. Right. Um, and I think not everyone processes verbally. So, I mean, this is where I think I would be now I want to interview you, of course, because that's just my personality. <laughs> I'm guessing that you would say chiropractic work, right. Can often be like a part of healing some of these emotional things because they're stored in your nervous system. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is affected by your muscular system. Right. Like there's right. kind of interplay in those things. So, you know, if you're working on being more secure, um, and you don't, you can't get your body into a place that feels good and calm, like get a massage, you know, go see a chiropractor. Yeah. Walk like walking is incredibly therapeutic. Mm -hmm. Your body focus on breathing, Mm -hmm. you know, something lovely to smell that helps you breathe deeper in your room so that you're actually taking in air. Um, but that it is a holistic process. Mm -hmm. It's not just a, intellectual, emotional process. It's a full body process. Welcome to the School of Higher Consciousness. I am your host, Dr. Gina, and in this school, we will be exploring the parts of life we didn't learn in actual school. The stuff that matters, the stuff that helps you heal and live a more dropped in, vulnerable and authentic life. I invite that higher version of you to join me in this podcast as we demystify and normalize truths in our world that often live in the shadow. All right, let's do this. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, and welcome to the attachment series on the School of Higher Consciousness podcast. My name is Dr. Gina, and if you're new to this podcast, thank you very much for joining me today. If you like what I'm doing, do all of the things, one or all, write a review, subscribe, tell a friend, all of that really helps as I start in this new territory of podcasting. Today, I am joined with Eli Harwood. She's also known as the attachment nerd on social media, and we will be discussing what secure attachment style looks like within the attachment theory. Now, When I was titling this episode, I was hesitant to say that we're just talking about secure attachment because we don't. We cover all of the different styles because they just intertwine so much. And she does a really good job giving us more background on what attachment theory is, how we came to know what we know about attachment theory. And I feel incredibly grateful to have Eli with me today. When I was initially writing this introduction, she had 281,000 followers, 
And that was just amassed within a year of her starting her online account. And three or four days later, when I went to actually record this, she's at like 290,000 followers. The amount that she is gaining per day is just like blowing my mind. And it's awesome because what Eli says is she's on a mission to helping parents learn the art and science of developing a secure attachment with their children. And it just shows us how many people are ready to level up our own self-development, our parenting, and our consciousness game. So yay, and congratulations to all of us, anyone listening out there. And as I mentioned, we do chat more than just secure attachment style. We had a wonderful resonance between the two of us, so we just chatted up a lot more things. So this episode is packed with information about attachment theory and other bonding styles, including anxious, preoccupied, avoidant, dismissive, and disorganized, fearful avoidant. So whether you're new to attachment theory or you've been thinking about it and studying it for a while, this episode will definitely be of value to all of you wherever you're at in the spectrum. And if you are brand new to attachment theory, I did an introduction to attachment theory in last week's episode. So episode 40 on the podcast, check it out. It gives you a basic foundation for what attachment theory is and describes how each style shows up in adult relationship behavior. So you'll be able to kind of figure out maybe where you stand in the different categories. And if you still don't know, I did put a little quiz in the show notes so you could go to that website and figure out what your specific attachment style is according to the online assessment. I intentionally designed this series so that we could learn more about each of the different styles of relating. So today we'll be hearing about secure attachment. And obviously, like I said, we're going to be covering a lot more than that. Next week, we'll be diving into the anxious style attachment with Erica, who goes by anxious female on her social accounts. And then in the final episode of the series, we'll be hearing from Adam, who goes by attachment Adam on his business and social accounts also. All three of the guests are experts in attachment, and if you're interested in learning more, I highly suggest that you follow them or even work with them one-on-one if you're interested in learning more about attachment theory. I do want to apologize that I have not curated an episode specific to the disorganized style. So if you're wanting that, let me know, reach out, and I'm sure that I can find someone to have a conversation with, and it just won't be in the specific series. I don't want to waste any of your time. I'll stop acting like I'm the expert on attachment and invite our first one onto the show. Let's welcome Eli Harwood. Again, I've linked her information in the show notes because you'll definitely be wanting it. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So my goal is to educate my listeners on a variety of different healing modalities and techniques, therapeutic techniques, just all the techniques that can help people grow outside of the traditional, like I go to my MD and they're like, okay, well, here's maybe a a medicine for you. Right. So in, in this process, you can heal, reach higher states of consciousness. So I'm really excited to talk with you today about the attachment theory and how, you know, to really hone in on what secure attachment looks like with our caregivers, with, you know, our romantic relationships. So maybe we could start with just giving a brief rundown of who you are, what your background is, and then what attachment theory is all about. Okay. So I'm Eli 
and I'm a licensed professional counselor. So I've been working as a therapist in the field for the last 15 years. And I have for that entire time been very, very focused on attachment. Mm -hmm. And I really got focused on attachment because it was a part of my own story. I had grown up in a home that was pretty riddled with mental illness and addiction and came from a family tree that I would say was a lot of passing down of insecure ways of relating. Mm -hmm. So when I was in my early twenties and I was trying to date, I was like, man, what is this? Like, there's this thing inside of my body and I don't know what to do with it. And I feel like when I get close to people, it gets bigger. So like, what is this and why is it happening? And so I started getting really curious then around the time when I decided to get my master's degree. So through that process and through being in therapy myself during that time period, I just got hooked. So I've been researching attachment and then using attachment focused ways of treating clients throughout the rest of my career. And then recently I got really determined to just spread the news because it's, it's starting to get out there more and more. Yeah more of a conversation, but it really wasn't for a lot of years. Right. And so I started my social medias. I've started doing some courses and I have a book that's getting published in January of 2024 because it takes forever for books to get published. Um, that is a workbook for how to earn a secure attachment style. Hmm. So it's basically like a rundown. Um, yeah. I mean, I shouldn't call it therapy in a book because it really can't <laughs> be therapy if someone else isn't with yeah, you. Right. That's what my hope is. My hope is that it can really be a therapeutic guide. Awesome. Yep. And well, so congrats. Connections. Yeah. Thank you. I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. So that's so that's me. Um, yeah. In the smallest of nutshells. Yeah. So for people who don't know what attachment theory is, mm-hmm. what is that in a nutshell? Okay. So attachment theory first emerged in the 50s and 60s, and it started with this thing called the monkey love experiment. And this is Harry Harlow and Harry Harlow puts these monkeys in cages, which I know like makes my heart ache when I think about animals and experiments. That's a different subject, but he puts these monkeys in the cages and he separates the baby monkeys and the mama monkeys. And in some of the cages, he leaves just food and water. And it's in like a hard container. And then in some of the other cages, there's food and water, but there's a sock that's covering the food and water that makes it soft. And then they look at kind of the metrics of thriving, right? And what happens and what they recognize is that the monkeys with the sock mother thrive at a different level than the monkeys without the sock mother, even though they're really just getting food and that the monkeys without the sock mother will eat less and drink less. And so there's this theory that starts evolving and John Bowlby comes onto the scene as well. And they start kind of going, there's something about the quality of the relationship between at this point, they were really focusing on infant and caregiver that affects the way that a child thrives or doesn't thrive. Then Mary Ainsworth comes onto the scene and she creates this research tool called the strange situation. And the strange situation basically assesses the quality of the relationship between a child and a parent very young from the ages of 12 months to 18 months. And, and I can go through at some point, if you want me to go through, I can go through the whole straight. I mean, this is like where I get really nerdy and everyone else is interested in (laughs) it. But overall, what all of this research and discovery kind of comes to is that the way that we are related to in our distressing dependent moments. So the tender needs in our bodies, the way our caregivers respond to us creates a style of relating. 
right? That we all have these attachment needs and those attachment needs are there to help us thrive. But the way our parents attend to them or don't attend to them creates a style of relating, which then affects all kinds of things. The shape of your brain, the way you relate to other people in you know, your childhood and in your teens, and then the way you form bonds growing up and whether or not you end up in kind of an insecure pattern of bonds in your adulthood. And there's research that's correlated to all kinds of other stuff like general health and um, heart disease and mental health and substance abuse. So the more securely your caregiver attended to your needs, the more likely you are to have a sense of inner emotional resilience. Fascinating. So in those earliest years, like you said, you could break it down into all of the little categories, but in general, what would you say it looks like when a caregiver is tending to a child in a really secure manner in -hmm. those earliest months? Yep. So let's say zero to 18 months. Those are the most dependent, most um, high volume of attachment needs that stage the caregiver would be highly responsive and highly attuned in their responses, capable of soothing a child. So I, one of my favorite um, developmental psychologists, Karen Purvis says that, you know, zero to 18 months is the stage of yes. You say yes, as Mm -hmm. much as you possibly can, right? Mm -hmm. Holding them, you're responding to them, you're cooing with them, you're mirroring. Mirroring is a really important part of attachment, which is that as your child is expressing or experiencing the world, their facial muscles change and yours change in response to their facial muscles. So if they're, you know, giggling and they're going, your face is responding with that genuine experience. And that is helping that child to feel connected, to feel seen, to feel worthy of connection. Um, So lots of mirroring, lots of responsiveness, lots of compassion. I I want to say, however, this is not going to be done perfectly. Like you're going to have moments with your children in those times when you're like, I can't right now, like this is too much. Or, you know, I had a child who um, I really think is destined for the opera or something, but she has what we call the pterodactyl. Um, There's like a level of pitch when she is crying that is so unbearable. Yeah. But that we all, I mean, everyone who's around it, it's like there's a need to take a pause. And so we eventually learned to just find some earplugs. You could still hear her, but it would help you, your brain reset, right? So you're yeah. not going to, you know, every time your child has a feeling, you're not going to respond every single time. And it's not about perfection, but is there a pattern of response mm-hmm. in that? Mm-hmm. Are you attending to their cues? Are you in sync with them? What's important to know about your attachment style? There's two things that are important to know. It's not a yeah. diagnosis. So it's not a mental illness. So the, yep. the way that we adapt to our caregivers is adaptive, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to respond based on what you're able to give me or not give me. And so then that is going to become my style of relating, but it is not a disease yeah. and it's not a life sentence. So you can shift your style of relating if you can observe what it was that you went through and really allow yourself to grieve and be honest about what it was and learn to feel your feelings in those spaces and then start to recognize your pattern and shift into more secure ways of relating. Mm-hmm. So when someone is um, becoming a parent or entering into a new relationship or new marriage, they're bringing whatever style they have and whatever style they have is informed by the way they were brought up then other attachment bonds they had after that, and then whatever healing or intentional healing work they've done. Mm. 
Mm. Like those are kind of the three sets of things that you're bringing with you into a new situation, like becoming a new parent or starting a new marriage or something like that. Right. Right. Interesting. So let's say you miss that critical 12 to 18 month window and you start to learn about attachment when the Mm -hmm. child's two, three, Mm -hmm. four, can you heal that? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, that gives so many people hope because you know, you only have an 18 month window. It's just, and you learn about this later. Well, and it really isn't only an 18 month window. So, I mean, the, it's, it's this, um, you know, dance between you and your children and you get out of step sometimes yeah. and you get into step and then you get out of step. You get into step. I think most of us got out of step during the pandemic. I don't know many people who didn't, right. right. It was just too much, yeah. right. All of our kids without their basic needs met stuck in their homes with us while we're all afraid of the super virus. Like it was a lot Totally. So we get out of step and we get back into step zero. So the way I would kind of describe this as is that there is sort of a foundation that's set zero to 18 months. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the period of time that the most solid parts of your attachment style are being established, but it's not as foundation of steel. It's still concrete, right? You can still chip away at it, but it's harder to chip away at that mm-hmm. than it is, you know, the wood beams that get put up later on and the drywall that you put up and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, you want as much as you can, you want to give that to your children zero to 18 months. And you want to have that in your own body zero to 18 months, but it is not, you, you can demo that house and build yeah. something that yeah. is possible. There are rare, rare circumstances that are just sheer levels of trauma um, combined with genetic vulnerability to mental illness, where maybe someone's not going to ever be able to be fully secure. Mm-hmm. But honestly, in my career, I've seen very little of that. I've mostly seen people heal from some really, really remarkably painful things. That's really encouraging because I think it can make people, it brings up a lot of shame and maybe guilt for people when they are learning this stuff in retrospect. And they're like, how do we reverse engineer this? How do we fix this? Right. Well, and I'll tell you, so part of my journey was that, um, the largest loads of my trauma happened when I was the youngest. And when I was nine years old, my mom made a very conscious decision to heal herself. She Mm -hmm. was like, I don't want to do this anymore. And no one in her family had ever done that. And my dad, God bless him. He never did that. And so she kind of went out on her own. She sought therapy. She sought medications. She went into treatment, went into inpatient treatment. She did all sorts of stuff. And she really shifted the way she related to all of us. And so it created a trajectory for me I mean, I still had a lot to work through and there were still many, many years in therapy. However, there was a path forward. Yeah. Um, and so she really broke that generational cycle at that point for us. And I'm continuing to break more of it. And my kids will break more of it. But I, I mean, I was nine. I, I and I have memories of being very little and her being just not okay and doing kind of crazy, terrible things. Yeah. So I just hear that like, yeah, that feels really comforting to people because it's a journey. We have that like black and white. (laughs) Oftentimes we think in black and white and to hear those stories just allows us that grace and compassion with ourselves to say any time is the time. Yes. (laughs) Time is now. I have people all the time on my social media accounts ask me like, oh, I messed up. My kids are grown now. What do I do? And I'm like, go to them and say, this is what I wish I had done differently. What do you wish I had done differently? Right. You know, like the process of acknowledging pain in our relationships is so healing and it can be healing at any juncture, right? Right. right. There are certain things that I think um, your children probably won't ever forgive you for, like sexually abusing them. Like that's probably, they're not going to come back from that. So that's yours to 
hold and deal with. Have to deal with, yeah. Right. But from but the but the process of the well-intended parent messing up because you didn't know any better is almost always repairable. Yeah. Ah, that's really encouraging. So what does a secure relationship pattern then look like in romantic partnership once, you know, we get older? Yes. So the tenants around uh, attachment in general, right, are this is the type of relationship that is designed for belonging, for identity, right, and for care of our most tender places and needs. So a secure romantic relationship involves two people who are mutually attending to each other's needs. You can't have a secure relationship where one person is securely attached and acting out of that and the other person is insecurely attached. I would call that an in-progress relationship. And then the question is, is the person who's insecure doing the work to learn the secure pattern or not? But securely attached folks reach for their partners when they need them. They don't wait for partners to read their minds, which is something that I think surprises a lot of people. It's like they had their minds read by their parents when they were young. And so they don't need that anymore. It's like, I know that what I need matters. So I'm not waiting for you to tell me that my need is worthy of your attention. I'm going to just bring it to your attention. Okay. Side note on that then really quick is whose job is that to teach the kid? Hey, someday you're not going to have a mom or a dad to read your mind, right? Like how does that do it on their own taught? It's not a taught skill. It's a learned skill. It's developmental. Learn skill from watching their parents or watching people around them. It's I shouldn't even call it a skill. It's a need. It's like, I get my need met. I have someone read my mind and articulate Mm -hmm. to me what my needs are. I then want to take ownership of my needs. I don't want someone else to continue needs for me. I want someone else to own my needs for me when that never happened for me. In mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so okay. like the, the insecure approach is far more common um, here and I'm going <laughs> to stew and I'm going to be bitter because I need something from you and you're not giving it to me. And it can't be real or valid until you see it and name it and reach for me. Right? So a securely attached person reaches for their partner when they need them. They don't wait to be reached for in vulnerable moments. Now, on the flip side, the securely attached person responds to reaching. So if their partner reaches for them in need, the securely attached person opens their arm wide and says, come here, like, what's wrong? They are receptive and they care about what's happening to their partner. They're not dismissive of their partner's needs. Right, right. right. Well, and in this time where a lot of talk around codependent relationships is coming to the front. I feel like what I'm seeing sometimes is people will start to recognize what codependency is within Mm -hmm. themselves or people around them. But then they start to say, you shouldn't need me or I shouldn't need you. There becomes this like, um, I don't know, maybe you can speak to what I'm referencing. I mean, I think it's a, it's a swing too far in the other direction. So like the, we're our goal, healthy human beings are interdependent, yeah. right? So we're not dependent as in codependency. And we're also not independent as like, you know, some person deep in the woods who hasn't seen anyone for 10 years and has fingernails and coils, right? Like that's, we are not independent or are we dependent? We are interdependent. Yeah. So I think as if you have been codependent or dependent in your style, you might swing that other pendulum and then you're scared of all needs from others and needs feel like obligations, but they're not obligations. They're just needs. And the other thing I would say is in a secure adult relationship, you might have a need 
but your partner isn't the only person who can meet that need. So you can say to your partner, like, Hey, I'm really struggling. Like, can you hold me? I'm just having a hard time. And your partner can say, honestly, I just can't right now. I have so much going on here and I, I, I just can't. And that would be, you know, a, a painful moment in the relationship, but you couldn't still then go and call your good friend and say, can, can I talk through some of this? I'm really struggling. Mm-hmm. Right? So I think codependence would be like only this, only this one person can meet this need for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. Now, if if you make a bid for connection with your partner and every single time they reject you, now we have a problem in the attachment agreement, right? What are we doing here? Are you my person? Or are you not my person? Mm-hmm. So I can almost see that it's really about being able to recognize a your feelings to know what your needs are mm-hmm. and being yep. able to feel comfortable reaching for that yes. within the next year with your new yes. partnership and then also being open to receiving their needs and then being honest in assessing, can I meet that or not? That yes. kind of is a lot for it somebody who has been insecure. And yeah. I mean, I've struggled with my own, you know, dance within that and read the books and mm-hmm. I don't have the knowledge that you have, but um, I almost felt like I went from like, they talk about like anxious and then avoid and then both of them. And then all these things, I feel like I went from anxious in one relationship to mm-hmm. almost avoidant in another. Yeah. Is that a common? So, okay. Two things. One, uh-huh. both avoidant and ambivalent styles are anxious. Just FYI. It's okay. like a number in the literature. People talk about them. They call it anxious attachment. It's not, there's no style called anxious attachment style. There is secure attachment style, which is then called free autonomous in adulthood. Then there is ambivalent attachment style, which is called preoccupied attachment style in adulthood. And that's the one people misname anxious. Okay. And then there is avoidant in childhood, dismissive in adulthood. And then there is fearful or disorganized in childhood and fearful in adulthood. Mm, so, so it transfer, it changes the name once you get into adulthood. Yeah, which, okay. I don't know why they did that. Just yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, But so you have a general attachment style, but you might have components of other attachment styles because you have different attachment figures. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I had a very preoccupied attachment style with my mom when I was young and I had a very avoidant style with my dad. Mm -hmm. So as I was doing my healing, it really depended on who I was dating, right? Like what, what pieces are coming up are about the dynamic between us. And so you do have one that tend, that I would kind of call your like default settings, you know, like what's the one that you feel like you go to the most and sure. feels the most like you, and then you have ones that depend. So I, I dated someone in graduate school who was far more preoccupied than I was. And I, it definitely activated my avoidance yeah. because that person was so consuming of me. It was overwhelming to my nervous system. Yeah. That's, uh, that's good to know because I was like, I, I guess I don't, it doesn't even matter if we have to label it or not. What I learned in my healing is it was really about coming home to myself, Mm -hmm. to my authentic self. And that in itself was just like this, I mean, a major pillar in healing the insecurities within. And in doing so, I just felt grounded, like more in integrity. And there was almost a risk Mm -hmm. that it felt like I was taking to stand in that authentic self. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So you're the therapist here. Like they haven't done as much, you know, had these conversations enough, but like it felt risky to just be like, well, no, this is who I am because people would reject me in the meantime. Cause I, 
I had maybe either met their needs along the way. And finally, I'm now tuned into my needs. Mm-hmm. So when people are healing, would you say there is um, kind of a basic general like path for that? Or, hey, let's work on this kind of to get you started? Or is it just always so unique and individualized? Well, I would say there's a, there is a path and then that path is individualized. So the path is that your very first piece of work is grief. It's grief. And so the question is, what are you grieving? Right. Are you, do you have an avoidant attachment style? Well, you're probably grieving parents who were unable to respond to your emotional needs. So they either intellectualize them, dismiss them, punish them, ignore them. Right. But they were, there was no competency in your home around emotional connection. And they probably packed your lunchbox and made sure that you got to school and you were in seven clubs and whatever. Great. But that like quality of emotional connection wasn't there. And so your grief is around the way that you, you packed your own emotional lunches. You put them back into your body and you kept them quiet and you took them off of your face and you distracted yourself. And now you're an adult and people say, how are you feeling? And you're like, what do you mean? How am I feeling? What, what is that? What you mean? What am I thinking? I know what I'm thinking yeah. because no one taught you to listen to your body. You were taught to ignore it. So now your grief work is around never having been held. And you have to go back into those spaces where you can find that little tinkering of emotion in your childhood and learn how to feel it freely yeah. and not believe you're burdening people with it. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you grew up, you know, preoccupied or ambivalent, that means that you had uh, caregivers who were unpredictable in their meeting of your needs. Mm. So this happens a lot with like alcoholic parents. Like they're maybe great when they're sober, not when they're drunk. Um, Or I've known a couple of people that say the opposite, real angry when they're sober and then very loving when they're drunk. Right. So it just depends on the caregiver. But there is this sense of sometimes you're there, sometimes you're not. Or like workaholics even. But maybe yeah, that's like, yeah. A- or, yeah, or like mental illness, someone who goes through, you know, a dysthymic or depression cycle um, or um, a parent who's in an abusive relationship. So when their abuser's not around, they're really loving to you. But when their abuser's around, the abuser's threatened by their bond to you. Mm-hmm. And so then they aren't available to you. Um, life circumstances. Yeah, whatever. So the intermittent availability. So then as a child, you became hyper vigilant. So you constantly were scanning your environment and you tried to become the type of thing you thought your caregiver wanted you to be in order to give you what you needed. So Mm -hmm. you're like, you came to believe that they were only there for you at times because you weren't doing something right. Okay. So you come into adulthood and now what you're grieving is like, well, there wasn't someone there all the time and the specifics of why and what, right. And then in the case of if you have a disorganized or a fearful style, you're grieving abuse and neglect, trauma. It's 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 trauma work. I would say all of it is trauma work. Um, maybe more severe capital T trauma work. Mm-hmm. You have that disorganized, highly disorganized experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So grief is stage one. Yeah. Okay. Then stage two is this incredibly awkward period of time where you are trying to bring out all of these hidden parts of yourself. And, and enter those into your present relationships when you have been hiding them and burying them for however many years. And I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah, that it is. Yeah. yeah. It's like you're changing, right? You're making a change. Right. To my in, 
innermost self, I wasn't changing, but to the way that I was, yeah, allowing myself to be seen, I was changing to others and and to myself in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so that's that kind of awkward period of time. And then, you know, what happens is, well, if you have good, safe people that you have access to, which Mm -hmm. not everyone does, right? Like where you live and how, you know, what circumstances that you you're currently in depend who you're in proximity to. But so let's say there are good people around you, you know, you, you then heal in those relationships. So it's like, you're, you're doing your own personal grief work, which usually you're sharing that with people also, but then you're slowly trying to bring out your truer, more authentic self and ask for what you need from people and accept what people can't give to you and whatever. And then you're relationally learning how to exchange all of that in a relationship where you're giving and receiving to somebody at the same time. Yeah. So you had brought up a little while back that if you are a securely attached human in relationship with someone who is insecurely attached, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's a work in progress relationship. Yeah. So I had heard that, oh, don't worry, you can heal it through a relationship when you are attached to somebody who is securely attached, if that makes sense, right? Yeah, yeah, right. You can heal your insecurity when you're with somebody who's attached. Isn't that a lot of pressure to put on this? Yeah, and I, you know, I don't know. That's interesting. Uh, You can heal in any context, you know, like, and, and what that healing looks like might mean that you're diving deeper into a secure place, or it might mean you're leaving someone who's not good for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely, definitely would not say that a secure person is healing you. I would say what's healing you is, is the process of you loving in secure ways. Like that's the healing It's like mm-hmm. you becoming the thing you didn't have. Um, and we tend to pick partners that are at similar levels to our healing. We don't tend to pick people that are, have healed way more than we have or way less than we have. Mm. It happens, but we tend to want to get out of those relationships because <laughs> they aren't well matched. So a lot of people with avoidant attachments pick people with preoccupied attachments. Mm. That's like super common. And then the healing happens within the relationship because the avoidant person wants to go into their turtle and disappear, right? In their turtle shell. And the preoccupied person is like, no, hell no. I'm going to knock on that shell till you come out again. (laughs) And the turtle's like, I'm not coming out until you start knocking softer. And there's this kind of process of learning how to step out of those old coping patterns and be present and connect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So So it's not the other person healing you. It's like, it's the process and you allowing that process. And that could happen with someone here or someone who's insecure. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. Do you not typically see someone who is preoccupied with another preoccupied attachment together? No. No. And then avoidance with avoidance. Not Not very very often. It does happen, but not as often. Yeah. I think we're drawn to the people who have the qualities that we wish we had in ourselves. Sure. Like what's missing? I think so. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's Mm -hmm. kind of an evolutionary standpoint on that. I don't know Mm -hmm. if that's Mm-hmm. prove that in any way, but I would say yes. Yeah. That. You know, that's it, the whole opposites attract idea too. For sure. And then do you have any other thoughts on what might be missing within the attachment work that's been published? Oh yeah. Well, what's some of that? What has been missing for sure are 
a wealth of clinicians of color from different backgrounds in being in charge of the research. So the research has been primarily led by white folks. Mm. Right. Um, so I would say, I wonder what, like, you know, would come of that research. I bet we would learn a lot more about the way that like culture and race mm-hmm. affect all these things. I think that just a deepening of our understanding of the brain you know, continuing to look at like, what is this doing to our brains and our minds and how do our brains work? Um, and more practical applications of how, how do you engage this healing and, you know, what happens when you do X, Y, and Z and right. Right. How do I apply this to my life? Yeah. More clinical research on it probably of, cause there's, and there's, cause there are a lot of therapists doing this work and who have been doing this work and they're seeing the transformation, but I don't know that we have a ton of research on that transformation process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then being able to point with mm-hmm. predictability to kind of what's happening. Yeah. That yeah. makes sense. So another thing that I noticed is when I was doing a lot of my healing was boundaries, which is a really hot topic is, yes. and I'm sure you could speak to so many things on the concept of boundaries, but for me, it was this like energetic boundaries Mm -hmm. and recognizing what was mine versus what somebody else's and then finding a place for that. So would you identify as someone who had an ambivalent preoccupied style? Ambivalent preoccupied. That's the anxious. I think so because of the way you described like scanning the environment and making sure everybody else's needs were met. And I would say with one of my caregivers and then the other caregiver, it was like more of the avoidant. Yes. So, so, but who was the most important caregiver to you? The preoccupied. So that's kind of the key. It's like your core style is, is generally going to be the style that you adapted with whoever it was. It was your primary caregiver because we pick a primary attachment figure in order to survive terrible, awful situations. It's, this is definitely an evolutionary adaptation. So if I'm, I'm very fragile as a young child, I can't defend myself against something in the event that something really terrible happens quickly, like a predator comes into the environment. I need to have one person who is my target to seek, because if I have connected deeply at the same level to two different people, my brain will freeze. That that type of choice isn't happening in the moment. It's more instinct. So we develop this primary preference with one attachment figure. If we have that, you know, luxury, not everyone has the luxury of that. Kids are, you know, raised in institutional settings, things like that. But if you have that luxury, you prefer one person and that person is the one that you are going to create your primary style with. Mm. So they relate to you. And that's usually whoever spends the most time with you, whoever is kind of your, uh, in charge of the children. Right. 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 Interesting. tends to be mothers, but it is not exclusively mothers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I've noticed my son, the two-year-old does go back and forth at least uh-huh. right now, like quite yeah. a bit, yep. like, and it'll be like, no mommy, mommy. And then no daddy, daddy. <laughs> yep. Maybe he's just figuring it out. Well, but in specifically in distress. So oh, if he yeah. Scared, okay. If he gets scared, he goes to you. Right? Sure. Sure. Yeah. That's yep. true. So like when he's sick, he comes yep. to me. Yeah. So that's all the attachment system. So the attachment system isn't activated um, in even like in anger always, right? Like mm-hmm. I can be really mad and it's not going to make me run to my attachment figure. It's really about, I feel danger. I feel distress yeah. or I feel, you know, like I'm in some form of like really fragile state mm-hmm. when I'm going to seek my attachment figure. Mm, interesting. Okay. So then you see the issue with boundaries being more oh, prevalent yes. within the ambivalent, more yes. of an anxious 
yes. kind of attachment. Back to your tide. Yes. Because what has happened is you have, your attachment system has become so focused on what the other person is doing, right? So you're scanning attachment figures in order to feel safe. Okay. The avoidance style is doing the opposite. So I guess it's still a boundary issue, but almost in the opposite direction. So the avoidant child learns not to seek their figures, not to look towards relationship, to look towards things, distractions, items, thoughts, everything away from the emotional realm. So there's a much larger boundary between them and others. And that's the dilemma. It's like closeness feels scary, right? And for someone with the ambivalent preoccupied style, separation feels scary. So fusion is a word I also like to use. Like you fused in order to feel safe. Mm-hmm. Someone who was avoidant, right? They they separated in order to, they isolated in order to feel safe. Mm, yeah. And so in sense. your healing process, you're learning to go. I mean, I remember this too, because that was my same course. I remember kind of having moments in time where I was going, I'm a whole person. I will not die if this person leaves. Yeah. I will be okay. Like that that my neurobiology said you will only survive through clinging and constant clinging. Mm-hmm. Right? That's fascinating. So then it brings me to this thought of you know, everyone talks about people being very empathic. Is mm-hmm. that just like we had a lot of anxious, preoccupied attachment styles out there? Did you see that video going around? There was some woman, no. I don't know who she is. Oh, she, there was some woman whose video went viral for a long time. And she was like, your ability to read minds is from your childhood trauma. And I was like, well, okay, well, kind of, maybe. Okay. Um, we, uh, there are two different things there. So that ambivalent part absolutely does create more of an awareness of what other people are feeling. So that's a part of it. But we also have genetic predispositions to sensitivity. Mm. So you can be highly sensitive and we think that like 10 to 20% of the population is genetically wired for that. And you can grow up in a secure home and still be a highly empathic person and it not be about trauma. It be about your skill set, essentially, right? Like artists, actors, like people who are, you know, are just drawn into the depth. I believe that I am wired that way. And mm-hmm. I had, like, I think it's both, but I, mm-hmm. there's evidence of it, you know, throughout my whole life. And I know a lot of people who aren't empathic after having gone through those similar experiences, you know, that they coped in just a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good to know because sometimes um, that's kind of where my train of thought has been going lately with yeah. And the empathic qualities yes. that sometimes yeah. I will self-identify with. And I'm like, well, maybe that's trauma. <laughs> well, well, what about it? We call it, we separate it from, you know, anxious empathy, right? So, or urgent empathy versus oh, sure. mm-hmm. and a sitting with, right? Like I can sit with a story and feel sorrow and be emp- empathic with someone without taking it on and feeling like I need to address it, fix it, rescue them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the attachment stuff versus being able to go, wow, I'm very, very good at reading people and feeling what people feel, mm-hmm. but I don't have to do something about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And another thing that came up was there's this drama that occurs within an insecure bond. And so when you start to heal or when you start to really stand in that authentic part of yourself and now you engage in relationship, it's almost like boring. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. 
right? Can you speak to that? Like if somebody yeah. is kind of going through that process of you jumping into a new relationship and they're going to do it different. It's like, it's okay to have that feeling of maybe it's boring. Well, now you've freed up energy maybe for some other things. Yes. So let me, let me speak to different layers of that. Mm-hmm. So because I want to be cautious, I do see people sometimes settle for partners. They are not attracted to, and, and they do that out of feeling safe. So they choose safety over passion. And then I see on the other end, people mistaking insecurity for passion, thinking that if I feel constantly on edge about someone, that's passion. Well, it's not passion, but it does drive you towards that person. So it feels passionate, but it's anxious. So I I guess I don't want people to end up in relationships where they're like, oh, I have to choose between, you know, desiring someone and feeling safe. And Esther Perel's work is best on that. Like, yes, that mating in captivity is so good and kind of going, how do we do this securely? But so there's a dopamine addiction that happens in an ambivalent preoccupied style. When you constantly scan people, just like when you constantly scan your phone, Mm -hmm. you get dopamine when you get the response that you were looking for. And then you get adrenaline when you don't. So I'm, let's say I'm checking my email because I, I'm hoping that someone I wrote to is going to write me back. And I'm really anxious about them writing me back. Every time I check it and there's no email, my, my heart starts beating faster. But if that email comes in and it's good and it's what I wanted, dopamine. But if you haven't done your work, you just keep looking for that next email in your relationship. Mm. Do you love me now? Oh, you love me. Do you love me now? Oh, you love me. Do you love me now? But you're getting dopamine, not oxytocin. You're not feeling that deep sense of being soothed. Mm-hmm. You're feeling a sense of being, um, I, someone once said that dopamine is the neurochemistry from more. Yeah. So like you're eating that, you know, Cheeto and you're like, well, I, I mean, I've never been satisfied by a Cheeto. They're so good, but they don't satisfy, right? Mm-hmm. You always want another one. Yeah. Right? And so I think that kind of process of learning how, to be soothed is the next step in healing that. And it's less drama when you're being soothed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're not, that makes you're sense. Not, you're not kicking up this possible problem that's not there in order to get the dopamine. You're you're allowing yourself to just go, I think this is just good. Wait, it's just good. Okay, now what I do with myself? Now what I do with my hands? Now what I do with my focus, right? <laughs> right. That's what I'm saying is like, oh, wow, well, I can just like, learn the language I've always wanted to speak or like, what's my hobby with the people I love and cook some food. And like, I don't have to always be focusing on my relationship survival. Mm -hmm. I can focus on something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if people are listening and they are, you know, starting a new relationship, what are some things that you would look for that would indicate, yep, this is a healthy early bond. Yeah. So pace, I tell people you always want to look for process in relationships. So a red flag is someone that wants to jump all the way in right at the beginning. I have heard people um, critique that and say that that's common for folks who are neurodivergent, have ADHD, et cetera. Um, So what I would say is if someone comes in and they're ready to jump in really fast, you go, huh, that's a little red flag. And you, you pace that relationship. And then if they handle that pacing, fine, they might just be neurodivergent. No worries, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's like, Hey, yeah, right. I kind of want to get to know you over time. Like 
I don't maybe want to talk every single day in the first week of meeting you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you do want to talk every day in the first week of meeting them, that's fine, but don't be planning out your wedding, right? Like, right. be curious, get to know that person. I joke with my clients that, you know, you usually don't find out about like the strange doll collection in the basement until they're like three months. <laughs> usually when you're like, okay, there's that <laughs> thing I didn't know was there, right? Right. And then if it's not there at three months, at six months, you know, there's another reveal. And then at a year, there's another reveal. So like, you know, you're not desperate. There are billion people. There's more than that, I guess, on this earth, right? So like there are more people for you. So let yourself prepare this relationship as if it is exquisite, as opposed to don't try to microwave it, right? Like, you know, you can take some beef and potatoes and carrots and onions and you can put them all in the microwave and technically they're cooked, but it's going to taste terrible. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you want to like make a beef bourguignon, it's like, you got to brown the meat first. You got to separate the meat, like take the time to get to know each other mm-hmm. and be curious before you really allow yourself to, to bond in identity with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I would say is go into the relationship, really listening to your body. What do you feel? Mm-hmm. You know, are they asking you questions? Like you're asking them questions. Are they noticing, you know, things about you? Um, how are they treating other people around you? What are their stories about the other people in their life? Do they devalue anyone that's ever, you know, not wanted to be with them long-term or do they have some ownership over their part in past relationships? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a very much about taking a curious stance and not a desperate stance. Right. Right. I remember getting in relationship with my husband now, and it was just one day at a time. That's what I told myself is that if I like it, if I'm still into him tomorrow, then that's great. That's great. And the next day, if I'm still into him tomorrow, great. But I remember consciously being like, I have no attachment to a future as long as we're having a good time. And then all the other things, I mean, not just like having fun. Yes, of course. It's, it's fulfilling in all the other areas. And that helped me kind of relax that preoccupied part of me that was really pronounced in the relationship prior. And that almost feel like it came out so much more in that relationship where I had to kind of like reset almost. Totally. Well, and for someone who's avoidant, they're kind of, they're kind of doing the opposite thing, right? So like the avoidance is, is going to keep them from maybe wanting to bond or jump in. And so their curiosity is like, well, what, what could this be like? What if this could be a place where I'm seen? Mm-hmm. Well, right? Whereas the ambivalent person, it's like, you're, you almost are like, um, titrating your instinct with doubt. It's like, because your instinct is to idealize in order to bond quickly, in order to feel like you're not alone. Mm-hmm. So you, you have to give yourself little doses of doubt in order to allow the relationship to unfold at a, oh. at a pace. Sure. And the, and, and the avoidant person is needing to give themselves little doses of hope of like, this could be really good. And so that they, they lean in more, right. You're needing to lean out a little bit more. They need to lean in a little bit more. Right. Uh, Yeah. And that naturally happened. Yeah. I love it. Me too. I mean, I, my husband is also wired in that way and we just did our little dance and I would kind of freak out and he would try to calm me down and I would calm myself down and then, you know, he'd lean in a little bit and I'd show him that I wanted him to, and it was good and safe. For sure. 
So I think about then with our kids, they're going to get older and they're going to start to get into relationship. And then I want to kind of back off, but also guide my daughters, you know, appropriately. Um, But it brings up this question of, aren't some of these quote unquote unhealthy relationships part of their discovery process? Yeah. And development. So if I see my daughter like in an insecure relationship, as long as it's not like violent or, you know, has that abuse factors in it. I kind of feel like I naturally will want to just like hands off it a little bit and just talk to her in the process. Is that something that you would say is? So, so the, so the, when we think then about attachment styles in our parenting style, there is some language around this. Um, So the ambivalent preoccupied is sometimes as a parenting style called entangled. Okay. Which I think really kind of gives you the picture of what that looks like. My child enmeshed. Yes. My child's going through teen and I want to come in and intervene and rescue and fix. And I want my child not to feel all the things that I felt. And so I'm trying to, you know, get in the way of their suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is not a secure way of parenting, right? A A secure parent does not believe it is their responsibility to prevent their child from having pain, mm-hmm. right? My responsibility is to be available for my child when they are in pain, right? And obviously like they're, you know, when they're younger, like you're not supposed to just let them fall off the side of a mountain, right? Like that kind of pain. Oh well, yes, you're supposed to protect them, but but you are, you are absolutely supposed to let them fall and bonk their knee in a way that's non-injurious, right? Mm-hmm. So like when you talk about teens, as they're kind of coming into that space, like, yes, we want them to figure it out young, right? Yeah. We want them to, to go, oh, wow, that didn't feel like having that partner who constantly needed my validation didn't feel great. I kind of want someone that's a little more confident in themselves. Or, yeah. You know, right. that partner who, you know, always got weird when I cried and, you know, didn't ever say any kind words or didn't, you know, oh, I kind of don't want that. I want someone who can like wrap their arms around me and kiss me on the head and, tear up with me because they right. don't want something sad. And yeah. So yeah, I think you're you're far more empowering your children by helping them have their own experiences and being curious with them about those experiences. Yeah. And that word yeah. keeps coming up. It's just being curious yeah. and talk with them about it and I guess offer insight. What what's your line then with advice? Do you just wait till your child asks or is a child a different kind I mean, of animal um, than a friend? Well, I think you have to be true to your personality. So I, I am a verbal person that has thoughts about everything, which is why I run my mouth like diarrhea on the internet. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts about everything. So, you know, I think it's about how, how you prevent, present advice. Mm-hmm. Um, our kids do need guidance and there are going to be things missing from their skill set. So I think, let's say, let's say you see your child in a dynamic with another person and it doesn't feel healthy or as healthy as what you would wish for them. Um, you start with curiosity. It's like, Hey, how are you feeling with you and Jake? You know, how is that going? And you know, they're like, that's really good. You're like, okay. I was noticing the other day that you got kind of annoyed when he texted you again. And you were kind of like, I wanted to be with my friend. She's like, yeah, yeah. He does that sometimes. And, you know, I might say, um, it doesn't seem like it's bothering you all that much. She's like, no, I'm like, well, what, how often do you think he'd have to do it to bother you? Like, what would that look like? You know? And then maybe at some point you say, can I tell you a story about something that I went through? Um, just so that you can have it in your back pocket to kind of evaluate your own relationships. Mm -hmm. 
it might not be this dynamic, but like I was with someone who, you know, really felt the need to check up on me all the time. And that evolved into them being controlling. And this is what that ultimately led to. And um, so it might not be like that with Jake. Jake might just be, you know, a teenage boy who's feeling a little nervous and needs a little, you know, cheerleading every once in a while. But like, this could be a flag. Like what? And then just like, what do you think? You know, and then, then now they have this piece and it's like, you have, have you given them advice? You've offered them some insight but now they can come back later on and say, Hey, remember that thing you said? I think it might be like that when they start to feel it or notice it. Versus if you say, if you give advice, that's like not curious and gives them no ownership, you say, I don't think you should be with this guy. I think he's bad for you. Well, now they're in a pickle. Cause if they're not there right now, what are they supposed to do? Like mm-hmm. the life you want them to lead now they're mm-hmm. stuck with you and Jake and you don't want that. Okay. So- well, I just think we discovered your next book. <laughs> what what is it? <laughs> I think it's all about navigating your children through the process of I guess a lot of stuff but like relationships. Like those okay. questions right there. Yeah. I don't think well, a lot of people would come up with on their own. Yeah, no, I mean that is my next book. My next I mean, book is but it's not I don't have a I have not sought a publisher for this one. I my other one's published, but this is going to be called The Bond and it's going to be all about how to use attachment to navigate staying connected with your children throughout their lifespan and all the tricky things. Cause there's a lot of tricky things. Yeah. That's this practical stuff that we were talking about earlier. That's missing. People want it desperately and they get it when you say it. it's not like it's rocket scientist, but it's also like, well, how did you just say that? And do that's that? true. That's true. Right. Well, and it's because I've been sitting, listening to people for, yeah. you know, thousands and thousands for sure. Hours. Um, for sure. That uh, goes into some of the work that I had done with a therapist friend of mine who's Mm -hmm. basically teaching, let's teach ourselves, parents, how to attune. What does attune even mean? So tune in. Let's talk about what tuning in even means. It's basic for a therapist, for an average person. You know, I guess if you're a preoccupied attachment, it's probably (laughs) going to be easier for you. That's right. That's absolutely right. (laughs) Right. Although not always, because sometimes that anxiety it gets in the way of attuning. Mm-hmm. So your body is so anxious that you project more anxiety onto your children and your spouse than what they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and it's also- more about you than it is about <laughs> tuning into them. Yeah. So we call that intrusive. So I'm now you're, you may think you're focusing on them. Therefore tuning, you're just focusing on them. You're not attuning to them because attunement is really allowing your limbic system to get into the same kind of level or space that their limbic system is in and lighting up accordingly like a wavelength like getting on the same same wavelength totally yeah interesting I mean I I always it's funny I move when I think about this concept of a tuna because it's about like being in sync right it's like Mm. I'm like coming into your orbit and like whatever your vibe your vibrations you know that thing and it's it is about you know what's your facial expression doing what's Mm -hmm. your breath like what's the tension in your body Mm -hmm. So, okay. People are getting more curious about attachment. What stands out to you as being really important Mm -hmm. for people as they are trying to strengthen themselves within relationship and just the relationship in general? Mm -hmm. Well, so, you know, sometimes the simplest things are the most profound, right? How you treat your body is going to have one of the most significant impacts of whether you feel grounded and secure or not. Mm. 
And how you treat your body is usually related to how someone else treated your body. So as you start to heal, you know, be conscious and thoughtful about responding to the cues that your body gives you, responding to your hunger cues, responding to your thirst cues, responding to your tears that when they need to come out, letting them come, um, responding to your tired cues and your desire cues. And they, there is a map within your body that already is designed to tell you how to take care of yourself. Like your nervous system will show you the way if you listen well, right? Um, and I think not everyone processes verbally. So, I mean, this is where I think I would be, now I want to interview you, of course, because that's just my personality. <laughs> I'm guessing that you would say chiropractic work, right? Can often be like a part of healing some of these emotional things because they're stored in your nervous system, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which is affected by your muscular system, right? Like they, there's right. kind of interplay in those things. So, you know, if you're working on being more secure um, and you don't, you can't get your body into a place that feels good and calm, like get a massage, you know, go see a chiropractor. Yeah. Walk. Like walking is incredibly therapeutic. Mm -hmm. Your body focus on breathing, you know, Mm -hmm. something lovely to smell that helps you breathe deeper in your room so that you're actually taking in air. Um, but that it is a holistic process. Mm -hmm. It's not just a, intellectual, emotional process. It's a full body process of healing. Um, you need a group of people who love you enough to be gentle, but also honest with you. I remember when I was dating my husband, um, I was going through, a, he's, a, he's a pretty significant introvert. And so it was like, you know, we had had a really great weekend or something. And then he was going to just take the next couple of days by himself. And my system was like, alert, 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 space, <laughs> preparation. What does this mean? And I had a couple of good friends where I could go to them and say, like, do you think this, what do you think this means? <laughs> and they would very gently say, I think it means he'd like some time alone. And I'd yeah. be like, what do you think that means? And they would be like, nothing else, you know, right. like, okay. Um, are you sure? And like, so they would help me twiddle my thumbs for those 48 hours until, you know, we're back totally. together. And then I'm like, Oh, that was fine. You know, and now however many years later, let's see, when did we get, what year are we in? 2022. So I think so. <laughs> 15 years. Yeah. I guess it's funny. Yeah. My therapy career and my, my relationship started Go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, but how 15 years later, like I have zero emotional nervous system response to space and separation from him. It's mm-hmm. like not even a trigger for me. Yeah. Right. Um, I needed those people in my corner helping yeah. me separate my instinct to, you know, go after and sit on my hands a little bit, you know? Yeah. 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 Have people yeah. In your- That's really good because then you gain those wins. Like yes. each little win can accumulate to feeling like you get a piece of you back. Like, okay, it's secure. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I used to early on in my career. I mean, I actually, what well, I did crisis intervention work at the beginning of my career but, and I think I was drawn to that and I was drawn to kind of these big, huge, terrible situations in people's lives because it, it mirrored that urgency and that anxiety in my body to sure. like go in and fix it. And, totally. you know, I've done work. I, I, even in situations like that, my, my response is far more in, in the slow connection in the, you know, 
process, not in the solution. Yeah. That's fascinating. That, um, which brings up when patients would come in, I had that urgency of how can I get them better in the shortest amount of time, which is actually a good quality. If you come in with pain you go to a chiropractor, like it feels good to leave without pain. Right. So there is some, a lot of benefits that came from that, but now I'm okay. If somebody Mm -hmm. leaves the office and they still have some pain versus, you know, whereas before it was like, if I don't fix it, then I like think about it at night. How did I not get them? Right. Well, and that's going back to that early preoccupied quality, which is I have to be something for people. Yeah. And versus just the value of your presence and your effort. And, you know, yeah. And the reality of healing pain is that it doesn't get healed in one visit. Totally. Like, and I'm so sorry. Like, you know, this is like the microwave versus the beef bourguignon, right? Like, yeah, technically we can put it in the microwave and see what happens, but like, it will also dry out. Like there's some right. things work if we try to do it this way, like right. let's go ahead and do it the right way so that at the end, the product is so much more tender and delicious and good. And yeah, yeah. it's like the last straw that breaks a camel's back. It took a while to get there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So well, I wonder where we'll be in 20 years. Like I, I think about that, like what, what will I have evolved into? I think I'll be, I think I'll be even more just calm and gentle and funny. I think it'll be funnier. It's like a little less serious. It's so true. I I do think about that and like, but I have to stay grounded because I think my MO is sort of to like rise up and go into the ethereal world. When I do feel more calm, it's like stay grounded at the same time. So let's go back to this feeling aspect. So you're talking about like the importance of recognizing what's happening in your body Mm -hmm. in order to tune into somebody. Can you talk about what it is to feel your feelings? Because that sounds like so easy, but it's just, I I mean, a quick story is my husband and I yesterday were talking and he knows I use this as an example every now and again. (laughs) We noticed that, you know, his level for recognizing a feeling is so much greater than it is Mm -hmm. for me. So something has to be really big for him to have a response to it versus me. I noticed a lot sooner so I can feel out of sync with him. It's mm-hmm. just not there because it seems like the stimulus needs to be stronger for him. Uh-huh. So talk about like what feeling your feelings that process is like, because it ranges for everyone. So, so I'm going to talk about it because specifically for someone who's avoidant, that's okay. really, really the issue. So for those, for those who are secure, they feel their feelings generally. Okay. It's like their feelings, their bodies, their sensations. It's like, kind of like when you have to go to the bathroom, you're like, oh, that sensation is I need to pee and I address it and I go pee and I'm done. <laughs> right. Like a securely attached person is emotionally potty trained. They just know what their feelings are and what to do with them. Okay? I love that term. <laughs> and then the ambivalent preoccupied person they are constantly going, trying to go to the bathroom when they don't need to go. Right. It's like, there's so much attention to feeling. Mm-hmm. So the process is learning how to like, um, how to properly attune to feelings. So like, yeah, I noticed that that was something in someone, but like, I don't need to attend to it. That was just like a thing. Let's let it. Is it more like slowing down to recognize kind of what's the consistent message rather than the like, you know what? It's more about, you're right. It's about being present as opposed to being hypervigilant. So when you're hypervigilant, you're constantly looking for all the feelings, but when you're present, you're allowing the room to inform you. And sometimes the room informs you with nothing and you allow that right? Mm -hmm. So then the avoidant or dismissive person 
has a, you know, neural pathway, neural pathways that are designed to draw their attention away from sensitive stimuli. So when you say he needs a really big one in order to stay there, it's basically, there has to be something that's loud enough that he can't distract from it. And he doesn't recognize he's distracting from it. It's not an, it's not an intentional thing. Most of the time, it's literally like from something happening to that anxiety. It's just, it creates a shutdown. Mm-hmm. And then somewhere else he's like, well, what do you mean? What that happened? Where? Like, so the avoidant person really needs to work on what's called their window of tolerance. So they have a very small window of tolerance. Their, their consciousness doesn't always even allow them to tolerate the feeling for enough time to notice it. Mm-hmm. So if they are going to learn to do that, then usually I'd say creating some kind of a meditation practice where on a regular basis throughout the day, they sit down and they scan their body for feelings. When no one else is in the room, they probably can't do it if other people are there. That's a secondary skill to be able to know what I feel and what you feel at the same time, right? So it's like sitting in the room and being like, what did I feel? What, like, what did I go through today? What was breakfast like? Oh, the kids were all screaming. What did I feel? I felt a little angry. What was, where was that anger in my body? Oh, it's kind of in my chest. Oh, my hands are clenching up as I'm thinking about it. Like, oh, this is this, this is what the state of anger is like in my yeah. body. And literally taking notes, like when I'm angry, my body temperature increases. When I'm angry, I start to sweat in my armpits. My fingers start to clench. My chest starts to tighten. When I'm scared, my throat closes up. My chest starts to tighten. You know, oh, that's interesting. My chest tightens both when I'm angry and when I'm scared. I wonder. So then I have to look at these accompanying accompanying sensations, right? Um, But it's really, it's like a self-study. And then, so I would imagine then an avoidant in that process, when Mm -hmm. they start to make those connections, Mm -hmm. I would imagine that they tend to be like, well, what can I do about this? Yes. (laughs) So what do you say to somebody in that process? Say sit. (laughs) Feel. (laughs) Go in your corner. And the more you intend to feel your feelings, the more you will feel your feelings. Um, but there has to be a commitment there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the folks who I've seen who've had real staunch avoidant neurochemistry and have changed it have been very, very, very dedicated, like mm-hmm. years of time to really shift that. And and a real understanding of how it's affecting their people, right? So because as he learns to feel his feelings, then he'll know how to feel your feelings. Yeah. And, it, you know... Yeah, there has to be a, a decidedness around it. You know, I think for, I've noticed for my husband, you know, we were talking the other day and his grandmother just died recently and my son was close to her and cared about her. And we were helping him process the death. I was holding him and he was crying. And I said, I know this is really sad. Like, of course it's really sad. And I said, I feel really sad. And he had seen my tears because I had held her hand in the hospital and cried and he had seen me do that but he hadn't seen his dad do that. And I said, and dad's really sad. And he looked at my husband, like, I mean, it was like, he, he was like, is he? Cause he hadn't seen it. Mm. And that was really powerful for my husband to be like, I had to really work on this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or at least pretend. <laughs> <laughs> or talk about my family didn't show a lot of emotions. And so I didn't yeah. learn to share it, but I'm so glad that we are alert. You know, we as a family are doing that. Right. It's so easy when you hear it again, somebody says it, it's like, oh, I just have to be honest. <laughs> you know, I know there's just so many messages in the world of parenting. particularly. Yeah. It's very overwhelming right. to try and sort through all that. If somebody who's anxious is mm-hmm. trying to get more in tune with their feelings, mm-hmm. it's like, 
they're, you say they're hypervigilant. So they're almost like overstimulated and they so, need to kind of slow down. How would you, how do you talk to them about feeling their actual feelings? So I would say there is this anxiety that is like a cloud of anxiety that has came from when you were little and you were totally dependent on other people who weren't able to be there for you consistently. Okay. And so the, this little you, this little version of you is really, really anxious. Mm -hmm. And you need to learn to separate that part of you from this adult part of you. So when you're in a situation and there's no risk to your survival, but your body is telling you that you might die if something goes a certain way, but you logically recognize that you won't die if something goes a certain way, you're actually learning to separate that younger part and, and care for it and not dismiss it or ignore it, but care for it as a traumatized part of your body, not as a present part of your experience. Mm. Um, one of my favorite therapy tools I use with people is I will say, close your eyes. And then I will say, I want you to imagine that really anxious young part of you. How big is she? Where is she? What's she wearing? What's she doing? Okay. Now, I want you to now find the most confident, nurturing, reassuring part of your adult you. And I want you to walk that adult you into that room with that younger you. And I want you to go be the mother or father or caregiver or whatever to that younger part that you didn't have at the time. And, and people will sometimes, you know, stop and I'm like, well, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, okay, close your eyes. I'm like, go scoop them up. You go put your arm arm under their knees and then around their back, scoop them up next to you, put their head on your shoulder. You just hold them there until they cry their eyes out. And you just tell them over and over again, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be sad. And people will just stop. And And then I say, okay, I want you to stay there with that little part of you until it melts into you because it's cried all it needs to cry. And then, and what, and people will look up at me like, oh, feel so much better. I'm like, yeah, that was grief. work. Your anxiety was grief work, but you didn't recognize that because you were applying it to your current situations, which was making people feel crazy because they were like, why are you being so insecure about me? I like you. This is getting weird. Yeah. I like you less because you're more insecure about it than I thought you were. <laughs> right, right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Wow. Okay. So the grief piece, it goes back to grief. Mm-hmm. So, which so goes back to grief. how did you find out that grief and that went hand in hand together? That is definitely about my own personal work. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Sure. sure. And I, you know, I had a grad school professor that talked about grief. So that may have been a piece of it. I'm trying to think of where else I discovered it, but no, I think, I think it was just in my own journey of just, and then watching people like, and knowing that it is when they really allow themselves to grieve and release, which is different than despair. So despair is when we feel sad or sorrow and then we attach it to hopelessness or it gets attached to hopelessness. We don't do it. It gets attached to hopelessness and we feel stuck and feeling like nothing's ever going to be okay. That's despair. And despair is not healing. In fact, it's the opposite. Leads us deeper into depression. But grief is like, I am going to allow my body to express its true authentic emotions about experiences from the past, especially in childhood. And I'm going to let them out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I joke with people about, you know, they people always apologize when they're wiping their snotty nose after they've cried in therapy. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Pain leaves the body in mucus form. That's what it does. 
Let it out. Let it out. <laughs> Job, right? I and love that. Yeah. So it's interesting. So as a little uh, experiment here. So mm -hmm. I, when I just scan my body right now, mm -hmm. I have excitement mm -hmm. I, slash anxiety. Like it, it almost feels sometimes similar. Yeah, absolutely. Like in talking with you, this is exciting for me. I'm really grateful that you're doing this. I feel all of the good feelings to be having this conversation. And so I have excited feelings, which I think could still be grounded a little bit more. Um, <laughs> Do they need to? So what are you feeling? Like if you had to scan your body? Hmm. Yeah, I think there's, there is always a little anxiety in my body when I am like teaching of any kind. Sure. I a little anxiety. It's There's part of it. Yep. Mm -hmm. I'm aware of like the, you know, the critics of the world. I'm aware of the people I really hope will heal from stuff and hear yeah. this. Um, I also feel excited. Like, and I feel, an, I feel a synergy with you, yeah. like we have a very similar energy. So I totally. feel like there's yep. flow. Like it yeah. I don't feel off course. Um, right. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what else. And I and I say this, yeah, continue if you no, no, feel no, that you because I I say this because I I don't think people always have examples. So mm -hmm. if if we're cornering somebody and saying, yes. "Hey daughter, how do you feel?" It's like, "Well, what how do yeah. you feel?" Yes. I I think just giving examples sometimes that okay. you know, I'm not just sitting here with a non-feeling state experiencing yeah. my day. You yeah. know, I have feelings all the time. All day long. I'm just not always saying what they are. Well, and I, with my kids, so I say, especially in hard moments, I say, oh, I'm feeling really tense in my chest, or I'm feeling like my head is just so full of thoughts and it's making me feel overwhelmed and flooded. Mm -hmm. It's making my, it's making my, you know, uh, eyebrows come together or, um, I give them the physical sig signals. I never just say I'm mad. I say, this is what's happening mm -hmm. in my that's a great takeaway. Yeah. The they, sensation. They then, that's what we're trying to make them do. I mean, really, truly, we are trying to potty train them with sadness and with anger and with shame and with joy and with fear, because we want them to recognize these are the sensations that happen to my nervous system when I am in a state of this particular feeling so that I can regulate myself. I can ask for other people to regulate me. I can tell a story about what's happening. I can solve a problem that's going on. That's creating this feeling. Yeah. Right? Basic, the basic place of emotional wellness is emotional awareness. Yeah. Right. right? And we were never taught it. We just no. weren't like no. no one taught it. Our parents barely did. Like every now and again, there was a parent walking around that was, you know, yeah fairy well, dusting their families with it. But besides no, oh, that, it was not a generational thing. Uh, 38. Okay. So we're in similar age. I'm 40. So we're in similar age range, but the, the era we were raised in was highly influenced by behaviorism. So everything was about how you get your children to act. Okay. And now, and there, that, that did not take into account the motivations behind many behaviors. Mm. So we didn't, it wasn't explored. It was like, you know, we did threw something on the ground and the, you know, first response was in order to extinguish that behavior, mm. not to connect to us and help us recognize why we did what we did and what yeah. we could, it was just extinguishing behavior. Yeah. I think that when you've been brought up in behaviorism, it makes sense. It's very logical. 
And so it's, it, you need like love and logic. Like that was a thing. Yeah. <laughs> totally. And there are some good things within love and logic. Like yeah. I absolutely think kids need natural consequences. That's a secure attachment for sure. Right. Like if you let, if you don't let your kids fail, you are failing your kids. Yes. Your kids have to fail in order yes. to l- learn growth mindset and how to, you know, have resilience, all that kind of stuff. But yeah. If you could have a billboard in every yeah. major city that had like your most favorite piece of advice, like therapeutic advice, life advice, what would that be? I think it would say something like at the end of your life, nothing will matter more to you than the time you spent actively connecting with the people you love. I got the willies. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, Yeah. Connection is so, is so beautiful. It's, yeah, no one lays on their deathbed and thinks, you know, I really wish I had remodeled my bathroom. Right. Like, no, it's like, did I attend to the precious moments? Like, did I jump in with the joy? Right. And this can be really hard because there are a lot of tasks in life. You know, yeah. I, I do on a regular basis. I hold myself accountable to have what I would call meaningful eye contact with my kids because I'm a doer. So I could just do all day long. And I'm like, Eli, stop, get down. Like, listen to what they're saying, like, give them your eyes, like yeah. that deep, intense connection. Totally. And then you feel a shift energy. Oh, yeah. yeah it's, it's really cool. The, the, um, other thing in along the same lines of what you're speaking to is if you could, uh, train parents, if this was, if you were at a parent training conference, I don't know. And it was how to raise children in their highest, best self. Like what is like the one first thing that comes to mind? There is a reason for every feeling. So every feeling is valid. And that doesn't mean that every feeling will be able to attend to, or that you excuse the behavior next to a feeling but that every single feeling your child has is an opportunity for growth, connection, and learning every single time. So yeah, I love that. And I have more courses that are in-depth courses that are coming. I have all kinds of stuff coming. Books is coming, stuff coming. So amazing. I will, I I mean, I obviously follow you, so I'm going to make sure to share all that. And in the show notes, I'll make sure to um, see what your current stuff is and make sure to include that. But Eli, thank you so much for your time. So lovely to connect with you. Okay. Thank you. All right, everyone. I'm sure you heard for yourself and you see why Eli is blowing up online. She is a wealth of knowledge and insight. And attachment theory can come in so handy, not only in learning about your own attachment, but it can be useful in learning about other people, your partners, your close friends, your family members. And when people start to realize why we relate and attach to people in a particular way, then we can start to shift any unhealthy behaviors towards a more secure way of relating. Today's parenting takeaways, every single feeling that your child has is valid, even though you may not be able to attend to every feeling and you shouldn't excuse the behaviors that come with all of the feelings. Every feeling is valid and is an opportunity for growth, connection, and learning if we slow down and tune in to what those behaviors and those feelings are telling us. 
All right, that's it for today. Take care. And next week, you'll be hearing from Erica from Anxious Female, who talks with us all about the anxious attachment style. She also sprinkles in a lot of her own wisdom and knowledge and insight. So definitely don't miss that. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I hope the School of Higher Consciousness helps fan that flame inside, bringing you closer in alignment to self. If you enjoyed this podcast or got you thinking a little differently, I would love if you reviewed the podcast or shared it with a friend. Any support helps right now as I journey into this newfound platform of podcasting and obviously giving it a five stars. I wish you ease and joy as you move through your day.